When did globalization first impact the world? How is it affecting our society now? What would an ideal global society look like? Find out on this episode of the Transcendental Club. Transcendental Club podcast. I'm Nick. I'm Nolan. I'm Ben. And today we're going to be talking about globalization. So the first question is a pretty basic one. So when do you guys think globalization started? So I was going to say that you kind of have two options here. You sort of have to pick 1492 with Columbus obviously discovering the new world and bringing the culture of the rest of the world basically to the far west and the modern day united states and that area i think you either have to choose that or you have to probably say post 1980 where uh, i don't know i guess around 1980 probably where like global communications truly became immediate and you had unlimited access to things through the internet and global communications and stuff like that i think you have to sort of pick between one of those two i think that globalization really started when I guess you have a lot of options in the ancient world too. Like if you think about the Silk Road, that was like one of like the first examples of culture and religion and all technology being spread across two big, more than just two big civilizations of the time. So I think it's existed a lot longer than 1492. But it's, I mean, obviously it's at a much greater extent in 1492 and obviously now. I feel like globalization is kind of just carrying out the human desire to like explore to a degree. And I feel like it comes along with, or it goes along with exploration. So I feel like it's kind of a gradual process. And I would agree that there's like, you know, the internet and Columbus's um, expedition. I feel like those two really were like, like big events and they definitely are very, were very um, influential. But I think, it's kind of like, like I guess, like steps in that sense, or, or I don't know, I don't know about steps, but it's like I think it's a very gradual process with kind of small um, spikes like those events. So I was gonna say, to you guys, I sort of think that. What do you think is the difference between when we had a global society where basically all of the land in the world wasn't laid claim to by some country, versus now, obviously, where pretty much as far as I know, like every part of the world is claimed by some country of some sort or some state. Um, What do you think is the effect of that? The fact that basically, if you're going to do anything outside of your own borders now, you're pretty much inherently interacting with another country. I think it definitely commends imperialism at that point. (laughs) Because I feel like now countries are still just as hungry for land and power via land, but kind of that exploration that has now turned into imperialism. I guess you could argue that it was always imperialism to a degree. Like, obviously, Columbus was, you know, like, assaulting the natives and stuff and, like, killing them and stuff. But so I guess, like, it was, but I guess back then it was seen as more of an exploration thing. Whereas now, because countries, you know, and there's, you know, obviously you have, like, the UN and countries are more um, solidified. I think that it's seen more as imperialism now. Yeah, I think there's sort of like like a humanism connection to what you're saying. Like, obviously, like Columbus didn't really think of like the natives as humans. And now we sort of know through a global society that there's all these different cultures and peoples that exist and we're all expected to treat everyone equally. 
Um, but I also was going to say, I think one of the fundamental differences between a global and non-global society is the ability to be an isolationist country. Like obviously now some countries are more isolationist, but it's not really possible to be completely isolationist because like I said, like you have to, you pretty much have no choice but to interact with other countries if you want to survive or prosper in any way, just based on the fact that like all countries have claimed like different parts of the world and they have different resources that you need access to. So even countries that are considered like more isolationist, that's not really like a pure possibility anymore. I mean, Ben basically said everything that I would have had to say to answer your question there uh, with the imperialism now versus I do find it interesting that he said that something about imperialism back when like Columbus was going on. I think that's true, but I think it initially it wasn't even really meant to be imperialist until they saw the opportunity and ran with it. I think they were just really looking. I mean, well, think about it. Columbus was initially looking for India, which I guess could be an imperialistic thing, but that was more for a trade route. And then once they reached a place where he thought it was India, but it wasn't the New World, they saw the opportunity, and so then they kept going back to it and creating an imperialist society. So, yeah, that's an interesting point that Ben brought up. I was just going to say that I think part of it is kind of an interesting cycle to look at throughout human history that... In a way, nothing is, like, unexpected anymore. You know what I mean? Like, when we make scientific advancements and different things, like, through a global society, it's not that there's nothing that surprises us or, like, goes against our intuition or expectations, but we're much more open now to understanding that different things happen in the world, like, especially across cultures and stuff. Like, when Columbus arrived in the New World, like we said, he basically didn't treat the natives as people, and in a way that like you could sort of see how that would occur that he would like he basically discovered this entire new part of the world that nobody knew existed like it sort of makes sense that like he would get power hungry and like misconstrue um like the natives as being like inferior to him which is obviously not a good thing but uh, you can sort of understand like how that thought process occurred as immoral as it is but i think now when you have like a fully globalized society and everyone is participating in different parts around the world then you sort of limit um, the extent to which people can be surprised by something that maybe a different culture does or something that we discover. I think it sort of fits into like the whole natural cycle of science that as time wears on, we don't really like everything sort of starts to make more sense to us. And we understand things more that we might not have understood like a hundred years ago or something. I think that is like a really good transition into another question, which is how have the instant communications in the modern globalized uh, society have the modern and instant communications, uh, I guess, via the internet, how has that changed the world and globalization? So what I was going to say for this is that basically now with the internet, everyone has a platform to, through the increased access to information. So basically, if you're anywhere in the world where you have connection to the internet and electricity and all the things that make you capable of having that kind of platform, you can get online and spread your ideas to someone or say something. And that's obviously, I think the biggest change with globalization is that, like I was saying, now nothing is really surprising anymore because like you could go on the internet and find information about any topic in the world and it might seem crazy to you, but you're really like, okay, I can understand how that would happen. Just by being exposed to so much information, I think there's no longer a shock value of something different than what we would have thought would occur, especially in different parts of the world. 
that now that we're all exposed to different information and different cultures that we're sort of understanding that there are a wide variety of things that occur in the world and they're not as surprising as they used to be. Yeah, I feel like we've kind of gone through certain types of globalization. Like originally with um, all of the all of Europe's expeditions, we kind of initially got maps of like the coastlines and then slowly that got the, that filled in as, you know, trade worked its way through Eurasia and Africa and all that. And then we eventually got to a point where we like had we we had communication somewhat with the entire world or at least with a lot of the developed world and i feel like the internet has just opened up like i wouldn't say the final because i'm sure some weird technology will come around that somehow completely surpasses anything the internet did but now with the internet um i know it's the cliche but the fact that you can communicate with anyone at any time i feel like that just introduces a whole new type of globalization in that way yeah, and the whole issue that the internet brings up is that it's brought really, really good things to globalization and really, really bad things to globalization. Not just the internet, but like instant communications with like just phone calls, even <laughs> um, phone calls, emails, everything that's related to very quick communication. That's pro- brought up really amazing uh, effects for the world like um being able to spread ideas really quickly like nolan was saying about being able to find anything about anything on the internet or share ideas quickly with someone else halfway across the world but then also i guess you could say that this has always existed since letter writing has existed but when people can hide their faces behind a screen or a piece of paper in terms of letter writing that's when people seem to get more hostile and they don't think about what they say. And so that also has caused a lot of complications. I mean, there's been a lot of complications caused by the internet and instant communication, but that's one of the biggest ones I've noticed is that people, I mean, look at anywhere on social media, people, that's where people are the most hostile because they're not afraid of anything that could happen to them because they're not talking face to face with someone. Yeah, I think that's a really good transition to the next thing I was going to say, which is that you sort of have too many people who think they're experts now, just because the internet has such an oversaturation of information now that you can basically, like I said, find out anything about any topic. But the reality is, if you want to actually be an expert on a topic that takes a massive time commitment, and nobody is going to do that for a wide variety of things. But Rather, everyone gets little snippets of incomplete information about different topics and subjects. And as a result, they're able to think they're an expert. And I was going to use um, Neil deGrasse Tyson quote is like, one of the hardest things is knowing enough about a subject to think you're right, but not enough to know you're wrong. And I think that's really a problem on the internet. Like you said, Nick, so many people are so hostile because they think, oh, well, I know enough about this subject, like I must be right. When the reality is there's probably a massive amount of information that you don't know and you haven't interacted with, but you're still able to think you're an expert because you got just enough information from the internet to give yourself enough confidence. And as a result, people are increasingly hostile because they can hide behind whatever username or account they're using and just say things that may or may not be true, but just to make themselves feel superior. I think that's a really big problem with the internet. Not even just the people who think that they're experts and everything, but you also have the people who are like, they enjoy being hostile for like, they get pleasure out of it. <laughs> and it's just like this, the internet and social media is a perfect platform for people to do that too. And so 
just like the increasing hostility among everyone is just seeps into the real world and therefore makes people just generally more hostile yeah like in a way having so much increased access to information on the on the internet completely devalues it which is that you can find so much information about any topic that at a certain point it's arbitrary what you look into and what you don't look into so you have the ability to just twist anything about any topic and say whatever you want basically and when you have that capacity like you said people can be really hostile and think they know a ton about a subject but written the reality is they just want to twist something and make themselves feel like they're right even though they might not be yeah i was just gonna say before the prevalence of the internet in order to like if you were actually interested in a topic you did dedicate time either you know to go to the library or to talk to someone who knew about it in most cases which was already someone who was a, a genuine professional or had already taken the time to go to the library and look at it and the fact that we have this um we're in, we live in a world where we have like the uh, ability to just google something in like two seconds i think that kind of just um feeds right back into what you guys were saying with just that people have a false sense of knowledge on a subject just because like the internet's publication um requirements are way lower and obviously that leads to some sources being way more reputable but for a lot of people either they kind of avoid that whole publication consideration when they're looking at information or they just take from biased sources that please them and I know this is kind of sidetracking, but the idea that I think, I think more now than ever, I guess you could always, I mean, obviously always there were publications that were biased, but like in the world of politics, people love to see their own opinions and feel validated when they see something that corroborates what they already believe, whereas people are way less likely to say, you know, I was completely wrong on this. Let me research into the opposite side on an issue. Yeah, you're definitely getting into the danger of having so much bias. And one, I think one of the biggest problems with the internet is just echo chambers that people think they're, they find a, su- a subject they're interested in and they gain their own opinions about it. And then they only talk to people that share those opinions, especially in politics. Um, so as a result, nobody changes their mind on anything. And you have a lot of people that their, con- their conception that they're, an expert on something is validated, like you said, by a bunch of people who believe the same thing. Um, but one thing I was going to add is, I know Nick has talked about before, sort of that, and when you look at when you look at like the past and just things that people have written and stuff, it genuinely seems like people were, for lack of a better terms, smarter in like say like the 19th century or something. But I think part of that is like you were saying, Ben. Now information is so devalued because there's so much of it on the internet, and it's almost impossible to verify whether or not it's actually biased or whether it's good information and i think the further back you go people in their free time consumed information the same way we do but like you said it was more valuable because you had to actually talk to an expert or someone who had truly dedicated their time to learning about something and um becoming like a real expert on it and getting like getting true information on it that's accurate but now with so many people on the internet that can just push an agenda behind whatever screen they're on I think you have a lot of information that isn't very reliable or valuable and way less experts that you can actually go to. So as a result, like as a society, we kind of have a lot of people who think they know a lot about a subject, but in reality, they don't know that much and they've gotten it from terrible sources. Whereas in days past, people were consuming more valuable information in their free time. So what we've concluded here today is that the human race is now a dumber more hostile 
race. No, um, <laughs> but I guess I want to kind of switch the direction a little bit here. And I was going to bring up all like the, like one of the most important things that this new global society is and has brought to the world. What I'm thinking about is the idea of being able to share technologies, being able to access goods manufactured and raw from all over the world. And that's made, I mean, you can, I I mean, I'm speaking as an American bias that it's made a lot of lives better and the quality of life better for a lot of people. And it's just like, that's kind of resulted in, I guess, the opposite of what we were talking about before, where it's like people also have, well, actually, no, I'm going to change my stance on that. In a way, having a better quality of life also makes people more spoiled, so then they also feel more entitled. But that's not the direction I wanted to go in. But as you can kind of gather what from what I'm saying is just the idea that we can spread everything that every single country has so that everyone can access it. And that just makes the world a better place. Yeah, kind of connected to what you were saying there. I think I was listening to a podcast a while back, um, and one of the things they were talking about was it was between um, a physicist and um, this math guy, and the physicist happens to be black, and they were talking about diversity and how the true value of diversity is that you have people coming from all different backgrounds, and as a result, you get a lot of different interpretations of the same thing. And in a way, that's good because you have everyone has different biases, and those can sort of be helpful because people from different backgrounds all think in a different way and they all have their different conjectures about similar issues. And as a result, you get a broader spread of ideas from people with different um, histories and social connections. And I think that's one of the really important benefits of globalization is that you have the ability to connect with people from all around the world. And inevitably someone in like on the other side of the globe from you is going to have different ideas and a different way of thinking than you do. And I think that's a really great thing that we can have a lot of people talking about um, the same issues with their own histories and different perspectives on it. And as a result, I think you just get a broader range of ideas that's advancing science and technology and other things a lot more um, from being able to communicate around the world. Yeah, just to play devil's advocate a bit, (laughs) um, I feel like I agree that globalization has, through the developed world, has made access to goods and you know, um, finished goods and all that much easier and um, I increase the quality of life. But I, I think that that's, a lot of that's at the expense of exploited labor workers in a lot of the third world countries where these goods are found and the, um, and the unfinished um, products and stuff. So I feel like there's always, a, there's a, always a, another side to any large movement like globalization and I don't know. I feel like I feel like it's hard to ignore that fact that there are people that have genuinely suffered at the expense of our ease of products and services. Yeah, you actually hit exactly what I meant when I said I'm speaking with an American bias. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um I was going to say that I think that's sort of the big downfall of globalization is that for lack of a better term, a lot of things are able to be hidden which is like when there's so when there's so much going on in the world and there's so many like economic and social connections and there's people all around the world being affected differently by the same issues it's hard to 
be invested in all of them. You know what I mean? Like you were saying, like a lot of times people in third world countries get exploited for the benefit of first world countries. And so we get the perception of, oh, you know, it's like our quality of life is being greatly improved by globalization. But the reality is if you go around the world, then that's being done at the expense of other people. And I think globalization, like I was saying before, we've oversaturated the market for information and it's hard to keep track of all the different things and issues that are going on and see how different people are affected. So even though we can interact with different cultures and different countries all around the world, it's hard to like keep an eye on that stuff and sort of be a watchdog for like whether it's actually negatively affecting people because there's just too much going on. Like it's really hard to sort out whether globalization is net positive or not. Yeah, I think a lot of that boils down to corporate entities as well. Like just the fact that um, a lot of a lot of the globalization at this point is done via corporations and monopolies that themselves are globalized um, in order to reap profits and obviously like larger margins and everything. Um, and obviously, a lot of these companies are the are the ones that are pushing the edge of you know communication and all that. But at the same time, like you said, there's a lot that's hidden in these companies. And obviously, at to a to a certain degree, they're often way more powerful than a lot of countries. In that sense, is that they have a ton of influence over areas via either like job markets or just the economy or just overall. But I would also like to become. I would like to also argue a less pessimistic point with uh, globalization, which is that. Um, I think it's also brought about a new curiosity for learning and for just overall um, bettering the mind, I guess. Like, I know we, we've already brought up um, Googling as a negative, but like, you know, like, for instance, Wikipedia, I know it gets a bad rep in school, but I think Wikipedia is honestly one of the best websites, honestly, just because any any source that is... I guess at all popular in that I don't know if popular is our word, but any source that like is often researched will be well, I guess, edited on Wikipedia. And so I feel like you, I, I know I've personally take like spent hours just kind of going through uh, Wikipedia on one page and clicking to a link on another and kind of just, I don't know, refreshing my mind with information. And that certainly wasn't possible like 10 years ago. Yeah, I think what you were trying to say is like when you have a lot of people analyzing the same source, when so many people have access to Wikipedia, it sort of like rounds itself out that any misinformation, there's going to be an equal number of people who have the right information looking at it. And in theory, they'll correct it. Um, Just to articulate a little better, what I was saying before is sort of like when you have a global society, it's sort of like you have a hear no evil, see no evil aspect of it, which is like, it's hard to like really get a handle on what's going on all around the world and in different parts and where people are suffering and benefiting. So like you said, like corporations have a lot of control of things like the media and stuff. And when we have so much information in a global society, it's hard to keep track of all the different things that are happening. And it can be sort of overwhelming to get information. So like you said, it's yeah, a lot of times like people in other countries are being negatively affected, but sort of like when that's not in your face and you don't see tangible results of people suffering, then it's sort of easy to ignore and it's even harder to get information about it. Yeah, I mean, I'll be the first to say that the abundance of information is like the most amazing thing to me. 
that's provided by this society. I mean, listeners can't see, but I'm holding up a Time magazine, and it's about sustainability. And the thing about it is that, like, sure, it's Time magazine is published in New York City, so like, I probably would have gone to it at some point. But then also, like, being able to have it, like, I guess reach going back 200 years a magazine from new york city would take a while to reach albany and then not only does this have information about sustainability and sustainable technologies but it also has information about what other countries are doing and being able to have information about what other countries are doing is such a huge advantage for everyone because then like we can see what a country is doing and sure it sparks some competition between countries but also seeing what other countries seeing what they're doing allows for us to see oh that's a good idea maybe we can take that idea and make it better and that's how the world gets better and i think that's such an amazing ability that we have as a society yeah i hate to bring the focus back off of that point because i think that was a very profound and good concluding point but just to add on to what Nolan was talking about with kind of the fact that some info can get clouded when there's so many news stories and stuff. I guess a good example of that is just with coronavirus, just the fact that it was kind of recycling the news for so long that like nothing else was really getting through. You know, obviously like examples with like Yemen and like a ton of other examples with that where it's not even mentioned in the news just based on um, the severity of the pandemic. Also, I think that this is really off topic. I don't even, you know, I'll, I'll just won't mention everyone. I, I think I know what you're trying to say, though. You're sort of saying, like, the information around it, there was so much information that it became nebulous and really hard to find out what's actually true. Like, you have so much information surrounding one topic, which is obviously a very important topic, but it becomes basically impossible to actually, like, filter through that and figure out what you should actually think about it. And it's almost like, if you were to graph the information, it's like you get more information about a subject and then you learn more about it and you get closer to becoming an expert and then you sort of hit a peak and you've ex- like consumed too much information and it's impossible and you sort of go back down with your knowledge of the subject. Um, but just to add to what you were saying before, Nick, I think one of the great parts, like you were saying, is that it's good to see other people around the world sort of experiencing similar, thing- similar things to you. And I think it's sort of comforting like for the human race as a whole to ex- like understand the, ex- the fact that people in different parts of the world are having similar experiences to you. And like you were saying, Ben, it's good that a lot of people are becoming more concerned with like science and technology. And it's like you have the ability to learn about things that like basically if you wanted to learn about them before you had to like pursue it in school and like go to college for it or something. And I think it's great that I find that in like literature a lot, like you're reading something and a writer will put something in that you say like oh i've experienced that too and it's kind of cool to see that like we're all in sort of the same uh, similar human struggle and that we all experience these similar feelings and stuff and i think that eventually someday we'll help the human race kind of unify and we will all sort of understand that we're not that different and we experience similar problems and that if we work together we can all move forward yeah well i think the concluding point to this is that we can see that in our global society right now there's a lot of really good things there's a lot of really bad things and i'm going to bring up my favorite saying that i always use and it's just that somewhere in the middle lies the truth and i, 
I think that's true in this case as well. like to show the Transcendental Club podcast some support, consider following us on social media. We are at Podcast Transcend on Twitter and at Transcendental Club on Instagram. Feel free to tweet at us or leave comments about your own thoughts, as well as suggestions for future discussion topics. Also, be sure to subscribe to us on whatever platform you are listening to and head over to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review. Thank you so much for tuning into the Transcendental Club. So what do we think about, what do we think the ideal global society would look like? So I think for an ideal global society, we'd have to reach a point, probably somewhere in the distant future, where there's basically no recollection of like geopolitical boundaries or like ethnic boundaries or things like that. So I think for a true like ideal global society, you need complete unification like across different groups of people. And you can see even examples with like things like Yugoslavia and other places like in Africa and stuff. There's been like new like boundaries drawn and stuff but there's still like lasting remnants of like different ethnic groups in different areas that still have like resentment for each other so i think for an actual ideal global society it would have to be something where there are no countries like there's just basically the earth and everyone is like part of the one similar entity um because in that way you can eliminate all the like geopolitical power grabs and other things that kind of prevent uh humanity from progressing forward that's actually a really interesting direction to take it in. That like reminds me of the organization of the society in Star Trek, where it's a, I mean, a global society, like entirely global, no countries really. I mean, I think the countries still exist, but they work together, which is kind of going against what you said. But the part that I found actually really interesting about you, what you said was when you said that we would need to like basically almost forget our past in order and like have a fresh start and the only way i can see that happening (laughs) is it not being our civilization not being humanity it would have to be another species so like it would take an entire like an um and a mass extinction uh like civil civilization destruction (laughs) complete complete annihilation of humanity in order for that to happen but say there was a way i feel like what would need to happen and this is kind of diving into utopia in a way too but i'm just thinking that like one of the important things would be that everyone has a really easy way of communicating with each other and it's like a small point but i feel like having a uniform language whether it be a new language or a language that already exists I think there just needs to be a lot more open communication and kind of going back to the more lack of borders, lack of countries, nations, everything. There can't really be any secrets between people. 
in order for everything to work s- smoothly. Yeah, I'd have to agree with Nolan that I think that we couldn't really have any like boundaries or countries because I think that a total global society would have to require basically us to completely forget about nationalism and patriotism, which I think is very difficult for a lot of us currently to do. Also, I think that I think we touched on this earlier, just like the fact that I think Noel mentioned this about isolationism and how that's kind of not possible as much anymore. And I think that's another aspect of a global society. It's just that as, you know, communication and trade and all that increases between all the other nations, you kind of diverge from any sense of that. And I think that's another aspect is that everyone is so like interconnected that you, you it's almost impossible to even draw the divisions anymore and the boundaries. Yeah, I think like going off of what I said is I think I was saying how you have to get rid of all the different subgroups, like um, different like ethnic groups, different like uh, national states and whatnot. If you don't, then you have all these like dividing factors that don't really allow people to unify. But I think obviously you were saying that's not really going to be possible to get everyone to completely like abandon their history and like give that up. So I think it's more likely that we'd be able to sort of convert all those groups into a situation where everyone has the same ideas of progress and how we should move forward and that all the different groups bring something different to the table. Like obviously if you're in like science or a field like that, then all the different groups from uh, around the globe, like contribute something different to the, the like similar ideas, like I was saying earlier. And I think that that's really the only way you'd have like an ideal global society is if you, instead of creating division uh, based on the lines of different groups that people are a part of, you can you like harness that power sort of. Cause I think even if you have a completely like global state where everyone is basically part of the same um, like human race, I think you still get different subgroups dividing, like whether it's based on appearance and things like racism and that, or whether it's just based on where people live and other factors. I think certain subgroups are always going to come to existence no matter how hard you try to avoid them. So I think it's better if we can take that power and harness it for good and to make progress rather than try to get rid of it completely because I just don't really see that as feasible. See, that's a, that's a really good point too. But what you said about science and people can like different groups of people contributing to different parts of science, that actually made me think of another question, which was like, if, if we were to have a global society, what would be like the best, let's see, what would be the best f- driving force to keep everyone motivated? So like, I'm going to just give my thoughts initially, just so you get a better idea of what I'm asking. So I feel like having a science-based society, if it was a global society, if having a science-based society where everyone worked to further progress science, which would then improve the quality of life, I feel like that would be like the most ideal way. Getting rid of all like nuances that would cause people not to contribute, like people being lazy and procrastination, everything that would like derail the society. But I still feel like science would be like the most ideal driving force in a society that's globalized. Uh, yeah, I think sort of like what you said, I guess this kind of goes hand in hand with science. But I think survival would be probably the best motivator. I mean, I guess in any context, survival is the best motivator. But I think it would be the fact that say we were facing some sort of existential crisis. I think that's the best way we would like unify around science or something that was going to protect us. And um, I was listening to Stephen Wolfram talk about this, if you've heard of him. And He's basically saying, like, you have to discuss humanity's purpose. Like, if you want to say, like, okay, well, we can all just sort of live here and survive and just sort of be happy as one human race and just focus on that instead of, like, scientific progress. But then he was saying, 
well, we already know there's certain factors about the universe that mean humanity has a definite end. So that's like a logical philosophy until you get to a point where the sun burns out or something like that, which is obviously very far in the future. But there is something to be said for when you don't have like a survival factor, there's not necessarily an incentive to make scientific progress, like just to make progress. So I think that something, some sort of existential crisis would be necessary in order for people to actually all want to contribute um, in order to maintain the safety of the human race. Yeah, I feel like there's, I know, Nick, I know you mentioned, like, looking at besides the nuances, but I think there would be a lot of nuances. Like, <laughs> even just in the scientific world, a lot of people either don't trust the scientific community or have arguments over it. <laughs> like, I don't want to, like, you know, f- like, focus on any one group obviously but you know i know like a lot of religions have had issues with evolution and obviously there's a lot of scientifically i guess based theories that i think people struggle with so flat earthers Mm. (laughs) yeah that's yeah so (laughs) i think that kind of proves the point that ideally i think you're right that a science i think science based is the best way but i feel like no matter how you divide or how you try to bring people together there's always going to be stragglers or like some kind of conflict which i guess gets at the whole i guess that that's the reason why it's known as nine like a perfect you know how why it's such a theoretical society is because it's basically impossible to achieve yeah that's why i was saying that just for the sake of conversation this is an ideal scenario not necessarily possible but what would be like the ideal driving force and that was kind of what i was going for following world war ii you would have expected the earth to sort of have like a more peaceful condition and people would have sort of bonded together over all the violence and um, atrocities that occurred in those contexts. But even after that, it was still, you had a lot of individuals and nation states going for power grabs and obviously like dividing up Europe into different factions and whatnot. So I think there's something to be said for that. Like even if, even really like important survival circumstances can't unify everyone because there's still people who are committed to basically going against the grain and going against truth. Like you were saying, Ben, there's certain groups that just don't believe in science that's pretty much considered objectively true so i think like we were saying this is always like theoretical i think you'd have to have some pretty dramatic shifts to actually get a society where everyone wants to coexist and cooperate um and i don't really have any answers for that i don't really see that occurring in the future but you know so i can be a little bit more optimistic i guess so this is like another question that i just thought of and I know this is kind of an idea for another episode, but I kind of want to touch on it a little bit. And it's kind of going into the realm of, say we have a colony established on Mars or the moon, and it's been there for a long time, it's thriving. And so then you'd have to deal with like interplanetary conflicts and political things, even if, like, especially if you start diving into like commercial colonies i guess and i I just want to know what you guys would think about like how those kind of relations would be between like say there's a colony and then like they they revolt somehow against planet earth and they end up breaking off and trying to be their own i guess country nation and there's nations forming on another planet and just like how that kind of relationship between interplanetary nations would be like what that would be like well i think that's sort of like what we were just talking about before is um how humanity sort of has a natural tendency to form subgroups and how those groups tend to harbor resentment for each other. Like even if you want to think about the United States, just basically like along the Mason-Dixon line, we formed the boundaries of the Civil War and those were 
the people had their differences, obviously, but think about having, like you said, an entire group of people on another planet living a completely different existence than people on Earth. I think it's pretty natural that they would want to break off, especially if you're considering it like a hypothetical, like utopian society where they all exist at a higher state of progress than the Earth. I think they would definitely begin to resent the Earth and want to break off. So I think, like we were saying before, there's a lot of issues with um, like different groups forming based on kind of arbitrary lines and i think if you have something as big as like another planet then i think that's definitely something that's going to be a real problem and i don't really see that being um something that would function if we ever achieved it in the future yeah i think certainly at the beginning it's going to be heavily you know government organized if we were creating settlements on the moon or on mars or whatever but i think i think that that will also create some weird class divergence because to a certain degree at least the tickets on those flights are going to be really expensive. At least at the beginning, it'll kind of be an interesting division in that sense. Where, like you, I don't know how to explain this well, but I feel like it may almost be seen as like a higher society, if that makes sense. Because I feel like everyone's either going to have a lot of money in order to go, or they're going to be like NASA trained or whatever. And so I feel like it, it might almost have the uh, people might almost have an opinion of it being like prestigious or whatever. I don't know if that really would lead to anything, but I feel like that could be a reason for a potential like not even a revolt, but just like some weird class weariness. There is something that I'll go like really hypothetical here. You could imagine a future where basically humanity's last chance is to create a colony on another planet. And in that case, we would consider a situation where we learn from our mistakes and we have certain guidelines that are set down for the people that are going to exist on that planet. I think that's like sort of our best opportunity for long-term protecting the existence of humanity because you would be able to basically, like I said before, have a clean slate of people living on a completely different realm outside of human history. And I think, like I said, there you would sort of naturally have those resentments that would form. But I think maybe if you made the group of people small enough, you would be able to limit those and confine them to the point where they're not destructive. So I think maybe, I know we were saying like, oh, well, what if they revolt against the earth or something? But maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we would say we want them to be completely separate from the earth and we can preserve the existence of humanity in a capacity where they're not going to be destroyed by the same problems that we have on earth. And they're not going to fight each other and have all this infighting and basically lead to their own doom whereas i feel like that's kind of inevitably going to happen here on earth just based on all the issues we have with our history and human nature and whatnot hence why we go to mars yeah that was like really actually like a profound thought i even if it was that hypothetical it was just like i wouldn't have ever thought about like giving people who live in a different place like just saying okay go revolt we don't need the connection anymore but then I'm also like thinking, like, say this is like getting to be really, really hypothetical. But say like Mars is terraformed, right? It has the atmosphere, it has oceans again, and you have land masses. And then the thing is that then people are gonna move, they're gonna migrate around the land masses, and then you're gonna have to deal with new borders being formed. And so like that just like adds a whole new mess of political and then like so then there would have to be two plants that would have to be globalized and then going back to having interplanetary relations and it's just like i feel like that having a 
I guess a planet plan B is a really good thing. But I have a feeling that in the future, long past when we're going to be alive, I f- have a feeling that's going to really be like, there's going to be a lot of political issues caused by colonies on these other planets. Yeah, I also feel like, I, I as like past our lifetimes, I feel like it may also become less of a nation versus nation thing and more of a planet versus planet thing. Because I assume that, I mean, obviously, as of now, we know that or we think that the moon and Mars are the only closest ones that seem the most, like, realistically inhabitable. But I feel like eventually it would probably spread out more and more as we start to decimate more and more ecosystems and continue to overpopulate. <laughs> I feel like it almost make more sense where we kind of start forgetting about boundaries on our planet and rather the actual, like, space splitting us uh, between the other planets. Because I feel like that... I feel like in that case, because there's a whole nother level of people that are so much more removed than your neighbors, it almost leads to globalization in that regard. So I feel like maybe that's a possibility for a a complete globalization of a planet, maybe. Yeah, I do think, I mean, like I was saying before, I I do think it's a little bit of a logistical nightmare to imply that we would have an entirely different planet that's completely separate from Earth and that they have somehow like a complete set of guidelines that everyone would follow and that they would like limit their infighting and that they would have like basically a utopia that we would never be able to achieve on earth. But I do think that's sort of a bigger underlying problem that we always say like we should be learning from history, but we don't really practice that very much. Like everyone has, not only does everyone have different interpretations of history, but it's sort of like you want to, you almost want to ignore the bad and focus on the good and be like, let's just do that again. You know what I mean? Like, obviously there's been a lot of evil that's occurred throughout human history. um, And we want to learn from that and, not um practice it again obviously but it's hard to say that you wouldn't want to expose like another society to that on a different planet because maybe you think like oh well if you're giving people ideas of evil you're going to cause them to practice it but you also want people to be able to learn from the mistakes of history so i think it's very difficult to walk a fine line of human nature and say like okay well these are the things we want to do and these are the things we don't want to do and I just think that's like really one of the biggest factors that's preventing us from having some sort of utopia is that we can't really um, divide history into, and truly learn from it like we should be able to. All right. If you guys don't have anything else to add, um, I think we can wrap it up there. Thank you for tuning into the Transcendental Club podcast. hope you enjoy this episode on globalization and I hope you enjoy the turn we took at the end. We try to keep it a little free flowing here and not stick directly to the questions all the time. Um, so obviously we went to some other planets there I hope you enjoyed it and tune into the next episode certainly out of this world (laughs) okay (laughs) uh